0: Okay. Um, I'm going to just talk about some of the research that's going on in the Environmental Change Institute. Um, We're an interdisciplinary environmental institute at Oxford. We work in partnership with the Smith School, and we work in both the natural and social sciences, and in fact, we've got collaborations with almost all of the um, previous speakers Um, We've got about 60 researchers in um, what's emerging as three main um, research clusters. One looks at energy and lower carbon futures, particularly um, behavior around energy demand um, and energy policy. The second cluster is increasingly focused on the future of tropical forests and is addressing um, some of the issues John Schellenhuber mentioned about the future of the Amazon and the role of the carbon markets um, in uh, perhaps protecting tropical forests. And then the third main area looks at the impacts of climate change both in the UK and around the world and also at the question of adaptation. And this morning, since we're in the City of London um, at an event focused on private sector solutions, I'm going to be talking mainly about some of our work on the built environment, on um, business and on uh, climate change. So just to um, make a couple of comments about the importance of cities. Um, Just last year, we reached the point where more than half the world's population now live in cities. Um, They're extremely important to climate change research, both to the causes, the impacts, and the solutions to climate change, we estimate that cities are responsible for about 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And of course, it's the world's urban areas that are extremely vulnerable to climate change. When we look at John Schellenhuber's scenarios for sea level rise, remember that the majority of the world's major cities are on coasts and thus will be particularly vulnerable. We've also got a lot of the world's cities relying on um, snow and ice for their water supplies, which is rapidly disappearing. And of course, many of the world's cities are not designed, including London, to cope with higher heat. But there is hope because if the vulnerability and the emissions are so concentrated, it actually provides a solution in that cities um, are governed um, by... Um, networks that are very important. They play a big role in their national governments. So perhaps cities can be the centres of innovation for possible solutions to climate change. Um, Just to um, talk a little bit about some of the work we're doing We've been focusing on several areas that have a lot of relevance to um, urban areas and climate change. And what I want to talk about are research that we're doing that looks at how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the UK building sector uh, by 60 to 80 percent. And that is 47 percent of emissions in the UK are from the uh, built environment. We're also looking at the question of governing global cities for climate change. Um, As I'm sure you know, London's taken quite a leadership role on trying to respond to climate change, but now there are networks all around the world and we've been looking at how successful those are. And then finally, I want to talk about uh, the work that we're doing on how to adapt the UK and other parts of the world to climate change. And a lot of what I'm talking about can be seen on our website or on the UK Climate Impacts Programme, which has an independent website And a number of our reports are outside. And in all the work we do, we find that the private sector, as Cameron and others have mentioned, they're absolutely critical, not just to climate mitigation, but to adaptation, but they can't do it on their own. There needs to be a partnership, not just with government, but also with civil society and the public. So just to talk a bit about our recent work on reducing emissions from housing, and Mark Hinnels is here from our team if you want to find out more about it, Um, the key message I want to say here is that our research has shown that focusing just on designing the perfect new house for climate mitigation and adaptation is not the way to go. In the UK, most of the building stock will still be around in 2050, which is often used as the target date for us to get climate mitigation policies in place. So although we can get a lot of gains in reducing emissions from standards for new buildings, one of the things we've been looking at is how we're going to get gains from the existing housing stock, particularly through refurbishment and shifts to lower carbon energy sources. Um, If you look at some of the energy trends in the domestic sector, in the recent reports we've done, the 40% house and home truths, we've looked at some of the trends, and Initially, you can be quite optimistic because we've actually had a dramatic increase in energy efficiency since 1970, we've got a lot less waste heat, we've got a lot more improved insulation and windows, but that is counterweighted by an increase in energy consumption and that's because more people are living in smaller households, there's too many single people, we all need to live together, we keep telling the students to think about that. So we've got 36% more households, a lot of this is elderly people living longer of course, and uh, the big increase in the use of lights and appliances, the number of appliances, the number of appliances that are left on standby. And in addition to these increases, when we look to 2050 and how we're going to meet the government's commitment to reduce emissions, we're looking at a scenario of one-third more houses and even smaller households, the average household size looking to reduce from 2.4 to 2.1. Um, The 40% House report uh, came up with a strategy for reducing emissions by 60%, and you can see that some of the recommendations that we put in place here, um, in these reports we assume that um, this will include um, affordable energy for the poor. It doesn't include some of the very promising technologies that some of the other speakers have looked at, Um, One of the more controversial uh, recommendations from our work is that we've got to increase the demolition rate not of the beautiful Cotswold stone protected houses but of the large numbers of houses that are very poor, very little insulation are costing their occupants large amounts of their wages even more now as energy prices go up. So we've got to increase the demolition rate if we're going to meet this. We've got to improve lighting and appliances. We've got to look at more local level um, energy sources including renewables and most importantly we've got to uh, look at behavioural changes of the sort that we've been working with With Malcolm. He's designing the technology that people could get feedback. We're trying to see what response that would have and one study showed that just by people getting feedback on the energy that they were using in their house they would reduce their energy use by 15% just by getting better information. Um, The latest uh, report that we released from ECI um, is an exciting collaboration with the Federation of Master Builders, and you may have seen something about this in the press over the last couple of weeks. Um, we've been working with them because they, of course, are um, one of the actors that is key in refurbishing the UK housing stock. And we've joined with them to produce a report and in their campaign called Building a Greener Britain, which has been endorsed by all of the party leaders. Um, there's now a motion in the Scottish Parliament to adopt the recommendations of this report. And in this report, we suggest that there's a, up to $6 billion uh, pound market in upgrading the existing housing stock. And this would produce both reduced emissions and reduced fuel poverty. But in order for this to happen, there's got to be massive skills retraining and sets of incentives Um, One of the things that's going to make this happen is, of course, the energy performance certificates, which at the moment are clustered around the middle of the range, and we've got to uh, move energy performance of UK housing up into the green end here um, in order to uh, meet these emissions reductions. And the report that came out, I think there's some of them outside, Building a Greener Britain, lays out a model for how we might do that through training, through voluntary standards, through incentives such as tax breaks and green mortgages, um, transforming the supply chain for refurbished buildings. And all of this will help us meet a lower uh, carbon target. Sorry. Um, just to uh, make a couple of other comments on that, it's really had a, a fantastic response from a lot of small and medium um, enterprises. Um, there are 18 specific recommendations, and these are being taken up very rapidly in the two weeks um, following um, the uh, release of the report. There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for this, and we hope this will help address this important question of refurbishment. The second um, bit of research I want to talk about is research we're doing as part of the Tyndall Center for Climate Change. Oxford's one of the six universities that are part of the Tyndall partnership. And we're working with um, University of East Anglia, Tyndall headquarters, of course, University of Manchester, Newcastle and others. And there's a whole set of areas where we're looking um, at um, how we're going to respond to the question of climate change. And I'm just going to talk about two initiatives. Um, a little bit of the latest results from the Cities study were focused on London and then um, some looking at international climate policy if I have time. Um, the questions we're asking at Oxford is actually focusing on the non-state actors, the non-governmental actors, and we're trying to understand what is getting in the way and what is facilitating business and cities and regions taking serious steps to reduce emissions and we've Um, One of the areas we've been looking at is the functioning of the new city networks, whether it's the Clinton Initiative um, or um, the ICLEI network and the Nottingham Declaration. There are networks of cities now making major commitments to reduce their emissions beyond what many of the nations are doing, and often in partnership with the private sector in those cities. And our research has been looking at those emission commitments, but I think the, the real question is, are they being implemented? Can we actually see that the um, commitments that are being made both by the cities and for the private sectors are starting to have an impact. And so we've actually been looking not at the rhetoric, but at the material result of this. And we have found that many cities and a number of corporations are in fact missing the targets that they set for them. We've identified quite a lot of multiple counting. A lot of cities, their emissions are outside their control because of national transport policy, major airports in the case of London and Los Angeles. Um, We found um, that fuel shifts are critical, Um, public sector leadership is is very important, and I don't have time to go into this, but we've been doing a lot of work on the question of carbon offsetting and finding both within corporations and within um, cities that there's confusion about offsetting. The media, unfortunately, has had a big impact in confusing um, the issue. And that what's needed is some much clearer guidelines um, as to how offsetting can be used in the most effective uh, manner. And whenever we talk to either cities or corporations, the importance of the Copenhagen deal that uh, Cameron was talking about is critical at all levels and links across all of those scales. A um, couple of results from the uh, London study that's being led by the University of Newcastle. We've been looking at some of the sea level, rise, later sea level rise scenarios and what they would mean for London. And we've looked at the new floodplain that would emerge if we had a 30 centimetre sea level rise, which is not as far off as we used to think. Um, We've got enormous numbers of people living in the London floodplain, we've got a lot of nature conservation sites, we've got major infrastructure and over half a million properties in the floodplain, as well, of course, the City of London, the engine of the London economy. And this map just shows some of the areas that would come under risk. Um, The red areas are where everybody or every piece of infrastructure in that floodplain would uh, be at risk. And Jim and his colleagues have done some estimates for what this would mean, um, because, of course, for Britain, we're looking at um, higher flow for uh, the Thames under many of the climate change scenarios. With the higher flow and the sea level rise, the estimate is the annual damages could increase to more than, an average of more than £2 billion uh, pounds a year particularly if we get development occurring in the floodplains such as the Thames Gateway. So it definitely raises questions about uh, what we're doing in developing the Thames Gateway um, uh, in the context of climate change. And these are very, very high damages and should be of concern to the private sector. Um, Miles didn't talk about uh, this work that his group had done on the 2003 (laughs) heat wave, um, but um, we... Uh, now, through Tyndall, are uh, taking a look at what this would mean in the future, and of course, uh, the temperature distribution in London in 2003, if you remember it, was quite unbearable. And this is raising questions not just in terms of public health, but of course, one of the most vulnerable systems is the London Underground system. And we need some very innovative ways to think about how the Underground is going to function, uh, whether we're going to flood it with deep pump water or what we're going to do to keep it cool <coughs> under these sorts of scenarios. The final thing I want to talk about is um, if we cannot mitigate or if we do not mitigate enough, we've obviously got to start thinking about how to live in a warmer world. And the Environmental Change Institute is uh, proud to host the UK Climate Impacts Programme for DEFRA, Um, and uh, UK SIP we have a team of, a growing team it's now going to be up to 20 people who are working working with stakeholders all across the UK public sector, local government conservation organisations, whomever we can reach. We're trying first of all we've spent um, the last uh, six to seven years trying to build understanding of climate change and its impacts and we're now shifting to a major focus on adaptation. The um, we're about to uh, release a new set of scenarios. One of the things we do with stakeholders is to try to give them the best possible information we can about what sorts of climate change they might expect. Now, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty here. In fact, Miles's group would say that it's probably a lot more uncertain than even the Hadley Centre uh, might suggest. But what we're trying to do now is to work from giving people one figure that they're aiming for to probability estimates about the sort of climate parameters they might be wanting to deal with. In general, those probabilities are around warmer temperatures, wetter winters, drier summers and sea level rise. And one of the challenges is communicating the sort of uncertainty that we're getting out of the climate model results and working with stakeholders as to how they work with that sort of uncertain information. Um, And one of the things that we've done now in UK SIP is to develop a new adaptation tool, um, which uh, is an online tool, but also um, is uh, available through some of the reports. And this is to help stakeholders, whether it's a small business or a local government or a major sector of the UK economy, think through their vulnerability to current climate change, how they're going to be... uh, current climate variability, how they're going to be affected by climate change what can they do, what their options are, and how to continually update their adaptation. I'm almost on my last slide. Um, We've done quite a bit with the business sector. We have part of UK SIP specifically focused on adapting uh, the corporate sector to climate change. We've done some vulnerability analysis. Those that are most vulnerable are those that are affected by current weather events, but also those that are investing in long-term infrastructure on the horizon by which we're going to see these changes and, of course, those that are particularly water-dependent. And we've developed a tool for businesses adapting to climate change um, called uh, BACLIAT. And what it does is go through um, a series of issues important to the business sector, logistics, which would be um, transport and infrastructure, how their markets might change, consumer uh, demand might change, how finance might change, particularly uh, insurance issues, how their labour force may be affected by climate change and what that will mean, and how their premises are going to be affected both by um, policy initiatives for mitigation, but also how they're going to adapt their buildings to a warmer climate. And we've uh, produced a report, Changing Climate for Business, and we're going to be doing a lot more uh, work in this area. And just to give you um, an example to finish with, um, we've been thinking through how you could um, have a UK that would both address mitigation and adaptation through the same sorts of infrastructure. And one of the things we've obviously got to think about is climate resilient buildings, ones that produce less emissions, but are also well adapted. And this is just one schematic um, that we're uh, looking at with local planning authorities as to having a vision and a positive vision of what a UK adapting well might mean um, if it was put into practice. So I'll end there. Thank you.